We are in Luke 24 first, and uh, that's page 885 in your pew Bible. I encourage you to find that. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give that as a gift to you. Make sure you have one of those. And uh, the reason why we're looking at Luke 24 is because we have been going through uh, the Apostles' Creed, and we've been saying that the more words you have for something, uh, the better you see. Right, And so we want to have a vocabulary for our faith. Uh, Pastor Pat and I, we went hiking up Mount Cardigan uh, on Wednesday. And we get up to the top, and there is this bird that just soars through really quick. And all I can say is, wow, there's a bird. Now, Pat has a sister-in-law named Dorothy who is a bird watcher. And he goes, I believe that was a peregrine falcon. That thing can dive at like 200 miles an hour. And all of a sudden... Because he had more words for what he saw, <laughs> we were able to appreciate God's creation better than just, there's a bird, it flew by, it had wings, it was, wow, you know, and it actually led us into a conversation about loons and body structure and how things couldn't possibly have evolved because look at how they can dive into the water and all these other things, but because we actually had words for it. And so we want to uh, have a vocabulary for our faith, have words for what we believe, uh, so that we can see more and cherish more and worship more in complete joy beyond what maybe the most normal Americans have. There are three events that most Americans probably understand about Christianity, and they understand those events because they get the day off, or it's a holiday, right? And so people celebrate the Lord's birth at Christmas time. Uh, they also celebrate uh, or remember Good Friday, okay, where his death, and they also celebrate Easter and how Easter egg hunt and a rabbit works with his resurrection. I'm not sure, uh, but Hallmark sure knows that that's going to help you uh, by their greeting cards. But perhaps one event that does not have a Hallmark greeting card for it is his ascension. And yet it's essential to us. The, the ascension is not only essential, but it's necessary in order to understand our mission. Christ's ascension leads to our assignment. Christ's ascension leads to our assignment. They go hand in hand. And it's not just me that thinks so. So does Dr. Luke. Those of you that are new to church and exploring Christianity, uh, Luke is a doctor, and he has been charged by this guy whose name is Theophilus. He is a rich man, and he wants to know, is Christianity credible? Is it valid? This movement is going on. Should I put my faith in Christ? And Luke begins to give a historical response so that Theophilus can put his faith in Christ. And so let's look at Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, and see how Luke ends his gospel with Christ ascending to heaven. Luke 24, 50 to 53, page 885 in your pew Bible. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now flip over to Luke. It's his second volume. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts 1 through 11, we see that Luke not only ends his gospel with the ascension, but Luke begins his next volume, volume 2, with the ascension. Let's look at Acts verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while standing with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will not be baptized with, but now you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So volume one is the story of Christ and his mission. Volume two is the story of the church. And what is the bridge from Christ's assignment, I have come to do all that the Father has told me to do, and the church's assignment, go and be my witnesses, is the ascension. The ascension is that bridge that goes from Christ's mission to our mission, and it's going to change the apostles' lives, the disciples' lives, and it's about to change yours. But first, what is it? Then we'll look at what it means. What is the ascension? It's a word that maybe we're not too familiar with. We don't use it that much because we're not in England. But if you think about history or geography class, you know uh, the word ascend from people ascending the throne. But ascending the throne means more than climbing the steps, right? When you ascend to the throne, it really means there is a change of relationship, you're not just climbing the stairs and sitting on the throne. You're climbing those stairs and sitting on the throne because your relationship has changed with all the people of England, with the whole nation of England. You've gone from just being an heir to the throne, an everyday commoner, maybe with a great pedigree, to being the king of the land. And it's the same thing with Christ's ascension, that Christ is changing his relationship with the people. Listen to this change that he tells is coming when he is standing before trial. Just think about that. Christ, the heir of the whole universe, is standing trial. And this is what he says. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, that's what you're going to see. No longer is Christ going to be humiliated. He's going to be exalted. No longer is Christ going to condescend. Now he is going to ascend. No longer are people not going to be able to recognize him. Remember in John 1 where it says that Christ came and he tabernacled among us, but the world did not recognize him as God? Now at the end he prays, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What that means is that Christ is no longer going to stand trial before men. But now every man will stand trial before Christ. It goes from condescension to ascension. His relationship with us has changed. While he was on earth, we sung about it in one of our praise songs uh, that Sandy picked out. 
that he is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. That's one of the ways that people look at Christ throughout the Gospels. He has a priestly role, a kingly role, a prophet role. But when he was on earth, that was localized. If you wanted to see Jesus, you actually had to go and see where he was. If you wanted to experience the power of Christ in your life, you had to be literally touched by him or at least ask him so he could say, go and be healed. Something along those lines. He was only in one place at a time. He was prophet, priest, and king, but he was localized. Now, because he's ascended, he is prophet, he is priest, he is king, but on a cosmic level. That, that means that all the benefits of him being your priest and your prophet and your king are for everyone, everywhere, at all times. His earthly condescension and all that limited him has been changed in his heavenly ascension. His glory that was veiled with his flesh is now completely exploding for all to see. He is being magnified. Let me show you what that means for us very practically. First, because of the ascension, it means that Jesus Christ's salvific work is finished. It means it is done. John 17, 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Christ says, because I'm ascended, my work has been vindicated. It is done. Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The book of Hebrews goes on to compare how Christ's finished work stands against those priests who are constantly working. Here, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The work of redemption's done. John Blanchard said this, when Jesus went back to heaven, he, his desk was clear. Right? Isn't that good? You guys come back from work, going back from vacation, you come back and all those things, and when Christ went to heaven, his desk was clear. What does that mean for us? There are some of us that are struggling with assurance this morning. Those of us that have a sensitive conscience, have been pricked by sin and our guilt, we can see our sin so clearly that sometimes it blocks our view of seeing our Savior. You can see your sin. You, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, God can forgive any sin. And you know that his grace can cover your friend's sin. But when it comes to yours and what you've done, you just really have a hard time believing that Christ could forgive you. And you're wondering. But wondering if there's enough forgiveness for your sins is like a child wondering if there's enough water in the ocean to fill his sippy cup. Take a step of faith this morning. Look to the ascension. Look at the ascended Christ who finished the work and is sat down at the right hand of the Father. When he went to glory, he did not abandon you. He adopted you. Do you get that, church? He didn't, he didn't leave you as orphans. John 14 tells us that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Why? So I can take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. His purpose 
of ascending is not to leave you, but to prepare a place to bring you with him forever. Amen? He's ascended. The work's done. The ascension is not a departure. It's an arrival. From earth, it looks like he's leaving us. From heaven, it is coronation day because it means not only do we have a savior, but we have a king. Second thing, because of the ascension, Jesus reigns. He is the king of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Ephesians 1, it's a great chapter to chew on all day long. It begins in eternity past with God's plans for you. To the praise of his glorious grace is a theme. Verse after verse after verse. But Ephesians 1, verse 20 through 22 Paul is praying that you would know the love of Christ. And he wants to remind us of this power that works in us. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How does he rule? Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, this is the kind of king that is also ruling in the one to come. And he put all. All things under his feet. Gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Man, with Christ, because of the ascension, he reigns, and that is going to change things, church. But we look around and we go, change? We're going to change this world? You look around and you see the rampant crime rate. You see the division in our nation. You see a world at war or on the verge of war at times. And you say, boy, it doesn't look like Christ has any jurisdiction in this place. It's true. Difficult circumstances, whether personal your own family, difficult relationships, death, loss of a job, or global can cause you to doubt that Jesus reigns. It's true. And that's not just for us today, 2,000 years after the ascension. His own disciples had every single reason to doubt that Christ was actually reigning. Because within a couple chapters, there comes persecution. And nothing makes you doubt that Christ reigns like persecution on this earth. So flip over to Acts chapter 7, and we're going to go to the very first persecution with Stephen. Stephen's about to be executed. Call that persecution? I think so. Stephen gets to preach a whole sermon. It's a great sermon. And at the very end, the people are gnashing their teeth at him. And he takes his persecution without flipping out. How do you do it? How do you take losing your life without flipping out? How do you take losing your life because of injustice without flipping out? Well, he looked up. Look at verse 56. Acts 7, 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open. And who? The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. No longer is he sitting, he is standing. He gets a vision of Christ ascended, and he is able to pray, Lord Jesus. Two words really important. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, receive my spirit. 
I, I can trust you with my spirit in the midst of this injustice, in the midst of this persecution, because you are reigning. I see you standing. And then he's able to pray, Father, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Receive my spirit. Don't hold the sin against them. You have to ask yourself, church, how does he have this peace? And then you have to ask yourself, how does he have this power to pray for the forgiveness of the people that are going to kill him? Forgive them as your heavenly Father is forgiving you. Church, we have a hard time with forgiveness in America. And our church, and how does Stephen do it? He saw a vision of Christ the King, his advocate, reigning in heaven over the universe. Have you been condemned by the world? Have you been rejected by the world? Have you felt like a failure? People run your name through the mud? People misunderstand who you are? To the, to the degree that you see Jesus reigning, to the degree that you see Jesus as the King of Kings, to the degree that you see you have an advocate before the Father, to the degree that you know that he has been given the name above all names, to the degree that you know that, all other verdicts on your life will be inconsequential. This is what I'm saying. To the degree that you know that Christ has a name that's above all names, it will not matter what other people say about your name because all that will matter to you, as we sung about, is that name, right? That name, that person, the king of the universe, accepts you in Christ Jesus. Therefore, who cares what the world thinks about you? That's power. That's peace in the midst of all kinds of downtrodden. We've seen the ascension, what it means for Christ. Let's think about what it means for us. So the ascension's just the beginning. The beginning's not the cradle. The beginning is his rule in heaven and how the ascension impacts our life. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, verses 6 through 11, Luke reminds us, and he wants to provide some validity to Theophilus of what's happened. And so Luke tells us that when Christ ascended, two angels were there. Why two? Why is number two important? Deuteronomy chapter 19 tells us that if anything's going to be credible, you need to have how many witnesses? Two. How many angels were at the resurrected tomb? Two. How many angels are here at the ascension? Two. Because the disciples are going to doubt that Christ reigns. They're going to doubt that they saw this. They're not going to be able to hold this experience forever. And Luke's saying it's credible. There was two witnesses here. And we learn that they question these disciples, and they say, look at verse with me, um, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? They're dumbfounded. They're stupefied. What are you doing standing here looking up? Uh... You know what he's saying? Church, are you stuck in inactivity? Are you standing here stuck, not knowing what to do in ministry? You don't understand the ascension. The ascension leads to the bridge for our assignment. The disciples didn't get it. Look at verse 6. Their question is so off base that John Calvin says about this question in verse 6, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Not a really nice thing to say about the disciples, is it? But look at their question, verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
What are they asking? They're thinking that Christ is resurrected. He has power. He's going to overthrow this Roman kingdom, and the nation of Israel will ascend. They're hoping for the here and the now. Christ, is this the time when we get to reign? And you know what they want? They want triumph before trial. We want to rule and reign with you before we ever get tested. And what does Christ say to them? I know you're interested in the when, but I'm more interested in the what. Stop looking to when I'm going to return and start getting to the mission. It is not about the time. It is about the task. It is not about this moment. It is about the mission. Christ says, let's get on with it. And what are you going to do? Three things here in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. What's our task? Be witnesses in the power of the Spirit to the end of the age. In other words, speak about me in the strength of the one who comes after me until the whole world knows about me. That's what we're to do. That's what it means. That is our assignment, church. There's a lot of things that we can do as a church, but our assignment is to make Christ known in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that mission will not fail. Christian, perhaps you're not witnessing and not praying because you forget about the power of God that wants to save souls that Pat challenged you to pray for. But remind yourself of Acts 1.11. This Jesus, who was taken up from heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is currently being done in heaven. There is nothing in heaven that isn't going his way because he is ascended and he's ruling. But we're praying that earth would have the same kind of rule and reign that we would see. And how do we usher that in? Making disciples of all nations. Being obedient to our assignment. Now I am glad that we have Luke and Acts together because at this point the disciples don't get it. They're sitting there, they're asking questions, they're stupefied, they don't know what to do. But in Luke 24, as we read earlier, it tells us that they actually did get it. And it did penetrate into their hearts and lives. It did detonate. Look with me at Luke chapter 24, verse 52. They saw the ascension, and now the power of the ascension finally detonated. And they worshipped him application for us. Because of the ascension, we worship. Because of the ascension, we worship. The word worship is used only by Luke here. It's as if he waited 24 chapters all the way down to verse 52. He has one verse left, and as a crescendo, he says, pow, they worshiped. He uses that word finally, when there is no more doubt about who this Jesus is, when there can be confidence, it is a crescendo. And worship does not just mean, oh, those goosebumps and the tingling from my favorite praise song being sung. They worship because of what they saw. They worship because of what Christ taught them. And also notice here that their worship leads to obedience. And they returned to Jerusalem. Instant obedience. Not reluctant obedience. 
They had obedience that was with great joy. Remember, they go to Jerusalem and they stand there and they wait in the temple for the Holy Spirit to clothe them on power from on high. It's the same way that Luke began his gospel. Remember a couple weeks ago, the incarnation, we had Christmas in July? Where did the first Christmas story begin? In the temple. Where does Luke's gospel end? People worshiping in the temple. Obedience. They worshiped, then they obeyed. Francis Chan this week had a challenge to our senior saints on Thursday. I am probably going to mess this up, but it is the best quote ever, and I encourage you to find it on YouTube. Francis Chan challenged us to think about how do we obey the Lord, and what if our children obeyed us like we typically obey the Lord? So you're a parent, and you tell your children to go upstairs and go clean their room. You walk up there, and you open the door, and your parents say, Dad... I've been thinking about what you said. I've been praying about what you said. Your teenagers say, Dad, I memorized what you said. Your college students said, Dad, I formed a Bible study, and we did Greek exegesis, and we tried to figure out what you originally meant to say. But what if... What Jesus said is what he meant. And you don't need to pray about it. I'm not going to say you don't need to memorize it. And I don't know if you need to get a Greek degree to find out what the original intention was. What if obedience is just obedience? I don't think that would pass the test for any of us parents with kids in the room saying, oh, wow, I'm, I'm so glad that you put that on note cards and posted it all around your wall. I'm glad you use different highlighters to show me how the words relate and parallelism and, you know, the repetition of words. And, yes, that's some really cool etymology with that Greek word. Just do it. Where is God calling you to obey? Take a step of faith this morning and look up at the ascension and worship him. Look up at the ascension and obey him. And that leads to the apostles witnessing. Because of the ascension, we witness. Acts chapter 2, what happens? Peter begins to preach a sermon, and a little bit of Acts 1-8 gets fulfilled. As people from every tongue and tribe begin to speak in tongues to show the inward change of God's acceptance and the Holy Spirit coming, and Peter preaches with boldness. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2-32-39. This is the end of Peter's sermon. I think it defines boldness quite well. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit up my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Because of the ascension, we witness. How do you have that kind of boldness that Peter has? Well, listen to this definition of boldness. Boldness is to be clear in the face of fear. I like that. You like that? Boldness is to be clear in the face of fear. And Peter is able to be clear in the face of these Jews who just crucified Christ. And he is able to say, we are witnesses of who this Christ is. And so Christ passes the mission from himself to the apostles. And the apostles pass the baton to us that we are to be his witnesses. I'm going to be honest with you, church. Almost anything else in church will be easier than being a witness for Christ. Almost anything else in the church will be easier than being a witness for Christ. You can serve in the nursery and people will thank you. You can serve at racetrack cleanup and word for word truth, the guy will tell you, pat yourself on the back. You can take someone a meal, and they will think you're a nice person. You can go to seminary and learn all about Jesus' words and get a degree. But what if Jesus meant what he said? You shall be my witnesses. And what if witnesses is a verbal testimony that Christ is the only way of salvation from sin and hell? That is what it means to be a witness. We must be more than well diggers and well wishers because it is only the gospel that reconciles people to God. How are you going to take that kind of witnessing and make it a priority in your life? Seriously. Just like the early apostles, the church penetrates the world to seek the lost. We're not meant to be passive, but to be alive and full of joy because we know what it means to know the resurrected Lord. You say, Josh, how am I going to do that? I'm glad you asked. Our last point, because of the ascension, we have spiritual gifts. The good news is, the one who ascends in power is able to share his power. The one who ascends in power can share his power. Look at verse 8. But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Christ, reigning from power, says, go, Holy Spirit. Who says go to the Holy Spirit? That must be evidence that Christ is reigning. We can pray as a church, come, Holy Spirit, and we have. But who says go? Only the one who is reigning. Only the one who is king of kings. It's evidence that our Lord is king of kings. He told his disciples in John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Christ says, guys, listen, I've been with you for three years. When I'm in this incarnated form, I'm localized. I'm only here. But it's to your benefit that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send you another helper. Not another of a different kind but another of the same kind, and he will enable you, he will empower you, and guess what, church? We get to be a part of God's task. That's because of the ascension. As a church, I pray that we would have a priority for world missions. We have a missions family reunion on Saturday. Part of what it means to be engaged in world missions impacts us right here and right now. 
we have a privileged church of sending out our own to be on mission. But in case you think that's the harder part, I think staying has a lot of responsibility too. I am not so sure that going is the lighter end or the harder end of the agreement. Staying might be a heavier responsibility. The missions conference is about how you can support our local missionaries while loving the local church. Dave Lewis is going to come and share about that. If I've intrigued you or challenged you on that sentence that it might be harder to stay, I think Dave might bring that into clear focus. But we want to be active in making Christ's name known. We have a part in God's plan. I want to invite our teenagers and young adults and youth leaders and other adults that are going, and I'd like to commission them as they go to Laconia as we end our service, and then we will sing a hymn. Congregational, oh, I'm sorry, the hymns first. Andrew?